Are you looking to simplify your investments? Check out BMO ETFs. Your asset allocation can have a major impact on whether you will meet your financial goals. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to asset allocation ETFs to complement their portfolios. BMO offers easy-to-use solutions such as the BMO Growth ETF, BMO Balance ETF, BMO All Equity ETF, and more. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically. What was once a popular mutual fund strategy is now available through an ETF with the introduction of the T6 units. T6 units provide a 6% annual payout on a monthly basis, helping retirees meet their cash flow needs. This is available on their balanced and growth asset allocation ETFs. Regular rebalancing means you can spend less time planning your life and more time living it. Learn more at bmoetfs.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get a key to the Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 85. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got uh, Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, still wearing the Patagucci here in uh, end of May, and Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. Welcome back to the show. Gentlemen, Keith, what's going on, buddy? I thought the storms were over. Yeah, it's still pretty cool here. We have this cold fog bank coming in. It's kind of interesting. Like we're uh, like our, like juniors getting ready for university in, in the fall. So you start going through all the, you know, the university options have already been decided, of course, right? But you then you start chatting with friends who have kids at other universities and you have these little unique stories and some of them are just, you know, like rich stories. They're not good. They're bad. And other <laughs> stories are really cool. So one of my friends who's talking about in, um, he showed me a picture of his, of his kids and this one kid, uh, his ginger hair, red hair. And I said, oh, he's a, he's a ginger. And he started laughing. He said, yeah. And he's going to Queens. And apparently at Queens, every fall semester, they had the running of the gingers. So every, <laughs> every redheaded kid on campus, they actually run through campus. Like it's a big, a big deal. Is there like three of them? They get paddle boarded or what? I don't know. I think it's the only group left of humans we are allowed to like, you know, make fun sleep. of. Make fun of them, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'm surprised that hasn't features. been canceled yet. I was gonna say, I'm surprised that hasn't been canceled. Yeah, and you we're they're canceling you know, junior, all the... By the way, Junior won't go to Queens. Do you know why? Uh, he didn't get in. Uh, no, he got in everywhere. <laughs> it's too close to Ottawa. Oh, it's uh, <laughs> the laugh track. We need a laugh uh, track. Uh, Rich, what's going on with you? Oh man, I've had a lazy week. I've done very little work. I've enjoyed the sunshine in excess. It's just been a beautiful, beautiful um, week in London. And uh, riding your bicycle, yeah, I've been riding my bicycle all over the town, all over town, just having lunches with people and and uh, just really sort of enjoying the little spring here. There's no low key nice day in London, man. If the sun comes out for ten minutes, everyone's outside on a patio having a glass of wine or slugging back and point yeah for sure that's what it is here but no i'm happy lots of things going on summer's getting better days are getting longer so there you go speaking of slugging back pints we're uh we're still working on the uh upcoming vancouver live event there will be another one this summer we're just working on the details so stay tuned for that but uh got a little bit on the housing front um 
I was at a, uh, it's actually, I'll start, start off with a story. I don't know if I can top Keith here, but so a good friend of mine, shout out to Steve Jagger, uh, who runs a company called Addy, which basically is a real estate investment platform. And, uh, so he put on an event, um, about a hundred people for the, basically it was like a Q and a with the BC government housing minister, uh, BC housing minister named Ravi Kalan. So nice guy. I mean, obviously coming to a real estate type of event and, you know, you know, he's going to get tomatoes thrown at him. So, so Steve's basically says, Hey, like, you know, you have some questions teed up for me. Like I'll, I'll ask them. So I said, well, why don't you ask them that, you know, they're trying to push through all this new rentals, housing supply. We need more supply. We need more supply. I said, ask him if he thinks a 2% cap on rent growth will hinder new rental construction development. Cause you know, if you think about it as your developer, I mean, 2% rent growth, your costs, especially in this environment are going up, I would argue close to 10% right now a year. And uh, so anyway, so of course, Steve asked the question and he goes, no, I, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's no correlation between um, 2% cap on rent growth and the number of new housing units coming to construction. I was in Ottawa chatting with an economist and they presented this paper to me and I'm kind of like, everyone's kind of like scratching their head. Like, what the hell is this paper? So of course, uh, Mr. Mr. Lululemon, Chip Wilson stands up at the back of the room and uh, he goes, I'd love to see that paper. I bet you that's a popular paper in, in Venezuela and North Korea. And then walks out of the room. Oh, my God. It was, uh, it was hilarious, man. Like, it's, you know, this billionaire at the back of the room. But no, for those that haven't been following Chip Wilson's story, obviously, he's kind of exited Lululemon. Um, but he's been deploying obviously a lot of that cash now into the real estate market. So he's been buying up a lot of uh, land in Vancouver and whatnot. But uh, yeah, he basically was like, yeah, I'm not investing in rental construction in Vancouver. I'm actually, he's actually deploying a lot of it in, uh, in the U S right now, just because anyways, so our housing minister and our academics are convinced that by capping rent growth, which is the, one of the largest components in a developer's pro forma, for determining the viability of a project um, does not hinder the uh, investment. It sounds like it might actually exasperate it. Yes. Make it worse. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're trying to incentivize something, obviously you say, well, your profits are going to be capped naturally kind of limits the upside. So you ultimately you get, less supply. And so this is, you know, the conversation. So if you think about it from a developer's perspective, just to give everyone a quick one-on-one, like, so over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, you've seen your, your rising, you've seen rising costs and the cost of financing, right. So to construction financing costs are through the roof, uh, CMHC's rental program, they've increased their development charges. Meanwhile, you've got municipalities, uh, have been increasing their development cost charges as well. So all of your costs are basically going up. Yes, your rents are going up, but you obviously, like I said, you're, if you're capped at 2%, it, you are kind of limiting the upside on the profit profitability of that project. So it, it's it's uh, the risk reward right now is why you're seeing a lot of new housing starts starting to roll over. So hopefully that gets resolved, but uh, that was kind of part part and, part and parcel of my week. Sorry, is he the MP for, sorry, can you just, sorry, can you just remind me who's, what is his job, sorry? Who? 
this gentleman who thinks that uh, rental growth has nothing oh, to do yeah, with supply. <laughs> yeah, R- R- Ravi. I, I honestly, I thought he was, you know, kudos to him for, for like I said, sitting in front of a room of basically 100 real estate people uh, and taking some really difficult conversations. But he is the housing minister in BC. So he's responsible for basically implementing housing policies, rent controls, uh, you know, incentivizing new supply, et cetera. He's doing everything. The housing file is his responsibility. Okay. So, I mean, does he have no shame is my question because I mean, you know, I mean, if you go, I mean, you know, experts, fine, whatever, but I mean, these are practitioners. These people are like yourself are in the game every single day, all day, trying to build houses and trying to you know justify valuations, trying to raise capital, deploy capital, raise financing, etc. I mean, like I said, does he have no shame? Does he not? Does he not hear the pushback from these practitioners and say, you know what, maybe I've got this wrong. I should reconsider my position. I mean, does that ever? Am I just yeah. very naive about this stuff? I guess I, I think I think deep down probably, but I think there's the, the politics of like, oh well, you know, a lot of our voter base might be you know, renters and, and 2% is, is, is an, is a good sell for us politically. But like I said, like at the end of the day, you're kind of like hurting those tenants because at the end of the day, they're going to be left with less options in the near future as you know, new supply basically gets throttled back. Um, you know, kudos to the kudos to him. We did bring up a couple other things, which was we've talked about on the show is the rezoning of multifamily, basically allowing duplex, triplex, fourplex on a lot of these lots. So that looks like it's going to be in implementation here in BC towards uh, the fall. And then, uh, yeah, so that was, that was, I would say was one of the big ones. And um, yeah, I know we talked a whole whole bunch of other stuff, but yeah, it's it's. I mean, the housing file is so political; it is is definitely a mess. I don't think it's going to get resolved. It's just too much, okay. too much, too many barriers. And Keith was going to ask us a question, but he's on mute. Yeah, no, I was, I was just talking away, and nobody uh, <laughs> <laughs> felt like I was chatting with Mrs. Icecap sometimes. <laughs> um. um no, but it's kind of interesting because one thing, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about how, you know, when I hear this story, Steve, I just hear, you know, once again, the public sector or government, they're trying to influence the way capital markets or the private sector should allocate their capital, right? Um, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, I look at what's happening over the UK this week. It wasn't two in the UK and one for Europe or the Eurozone or EU. Right, right now, Christine Lagarde is combining them all together in, into one country in, in her mind. Uh, but there are there were three significant comments and announcements over there this week. And remember, you know, like we like to say, if something's happening over there, it's probably going to happen over here as well so we'll we'll dive into that as well as we get going but it's the exact same theme it's government knows best and if any government is listening you don't always know best not not for the private sector you know let us allocate capital the way we want to yeah no for sure i mean um just to kind of add on to the housing file there was another report um from the bank of canada last week um which kind of stirred some headlines which was uh, they put out a research note which suggested that um, fixed payment variable rate borrowers would need to increase their monthly would 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 need to increase their mortgage payments by approximately forty percent 
in order to maintain their original amortization schedule, assuming a renewal in 2025 or 2026. So the Bank of Canada's research is essentially saying these people that are on these variable rate products where their payments don't really change, if they just leave it as is, they're going to see uh, huge increases in 25, 26. So they're, they're suggesting that you need to increase your payment by about 40% to keep your amortization schedule on track. <clears throat> now that I think there's a lot of holes in that argument, which I'm sure we can get into, but. Well, can you, I mean, can I just ask a quick question before you go on to that? So is that, is that we talked about, you know, the great rate reset, which is uh, different countries that have very short duration mortgage books. So South Korea, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada is obviously one of them, very much unlike the US. We, um, we've talked about how as the rate hikes that we've seen flow through, there's going to be quite, you know, the consumers are going to be squeezed. Does that just mean we we're about to see it or have we over, have we exaggerated that point? Um, have we yet to see it or I you know what I think, mean? I think it's a little bit exaggerated in the fact that like, it's a real, it is, but it's a potentially larger problem, but I think it's a bit exaggerated to the similar route of the mortgage deferral cliff, which okay. basically means that like, there's a lot of variables. You're trying to forecast and predict where things are going to be three years from now. These guys couldn't predict, I mean, I, I couldn't either, but like you, you couldn't predict rates. These guys couldn't predict transitory inflation, which was right. like screaming at everybody's face when, you know, your M2 growth is up double digits. So the fact, like the, obviously in their projections are projecting like, like who knows, right? I mean, if we stumble into this deep recession, rates go back, maybe not to zero, but they go lower. Like it's just... And then the, you know, house prices right now, I mean, as of right now, they're going up. So like that gives people more equity in their homes, which allows them to basically refi and and push back their amortization schedule. So there's so many variables at play that can happen and change this scenario that I think it's like there's no sense in losing sleep over something that's three years out when we can't predict three months out. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, sort of this thing that's out there that there's a, but I think there's a whole host of scenarios that borrowers are going to like figure out, manage. There's definitely going to be some that get left behind. There will be people that lose their homes. Like it's going to happen. Um, but is it going to be catastrophic? I'm not necessarily convinced, but that's someone coming from someone that's in the industry. I have Keith, another question because Keith is still is like frozen or something. <laughs> I think Keith is. You I was waiting for a laugh track there. Uh, <laughs> trying to make like a real estate kind of a joke, and I was like, "Was that?" I got no jokes. Anyways, man. okay, it's, go for um, it, Keith. <laughs> no, nothing. I mean, it, it, you know, we're barreling like, you know, right down the middle of the highway here towards the next Bank of Canada meeting. And, you know, whether they're going to hike again or not. And there's lots of data out there to suggest that they will or they should resume hikes. And most importantly, you know, the Aussies have done it. You know, other central banks are sort of hinting they, they might want to start hiking again. Um, but the data is also there to suggest how, you know, that they don't have to. We went through that last week. And we talked about how inflation data is uh, is still increasing, but it's, it's at a slower pace so it is coming down but this week we're getting the bank's earnings coming out so we're going to go to the I bank's have a question earnings. keith did you see yeah. uh did you see new zealand i thought it was interesting that they raised rates as they were kind of expected to but then they're apparently unexpectedly 
their their uh, Bank of New Zealand governor or whatever came out and said that uh, they're done. They're on pause. Kind of shocked the markets a bit. Uh, I, d- I didn't see that story. So, so I guess uh, that's another one of your central bankers that has kind of moved to the sidelines. So Tiff, Tiff might not be the only guy, I guess, on the sidelines as of right now. It's really tough because, you know, what, what are they going to do? I'm still under the, the expectation. So if the Twinkie is on the line, and uh, I think we need something different starts a Twinkie, guys. I'm getting yep. a bit too Twinkie on, on the side here. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't. Be, yeah, you got to slug a beer back at 8 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't on that before. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but, uh, yeah I, I'm still under the impression that they're on hold. And it's because, you know, again, the, you know, again, you go through a whole Twitter world, you know, you know, some people can be a bit um, living on a, in a different world when they're there. But uh, that's a nice way of saying people can be aggressive in a field that maybe they shouldn't be aggressive in. But with the Bank of Canada, you know, they're looking at all the data. They're just like us all the time. And uh, we had the bank earnings come out this week, yesterday, and, and again today. Today's Thursday, of course. So um, I think we had five of them have come out. Five banks or four? I don't I think remember. We have, last I think two days. I think all of them. We'll we'll double check. But Keith, yeah, walk us through that. So yeah, I so see a TD today, CIBC, RBC. I think we have BMO and Scotia yesterday. So yeah, I think we've got all five. Yeah, that that's all of them. And uh, so as you know, one thing that we've been tracking a lot now over the last maybe three quarters is is what's happening with the provisioning for uh, credit losses or loan losses. And just for that, if, if you're not familiar with that is, let's just say uh, three of us here at the Lunar, we are a bank and say we've lent out a, a billion dollars in, in loans for people to buy houses, for example. And we think that, hey, you know what, things like these, this rise in interest rates, it's going to make uh difficult for a portion of our customers not to be able to pay back their mortgage. Maybe they'll become delinquent on it. So late paying and stuff like that. So three of us, we, we had to come up with a, a number and we'll say, for example, let's just say of that billion that we lent out, let's say, uh, you know what, maybe there's $10 million in loans or mortgages that we're not going to get our money back on. So we set that aside for the quarter. That's called we're provisioning for a credit loss. That's what that's called. And as you go from one quarter to the next, you add more money into that, call it a, uh, like a, a soothing, a smoothing account, if you want, something like that. And then say the next quarter and quarter after the economy recovers again, so you can claw money back out of it. And that's what RBC did back in 2020 or 21 i forget what it was 21 and um so they they took about 600 million out of that kitty and it really boosted their earnings and now a year later with their numbers are coming through um they've had to put all that back in and more so you know that's just a bit of a wordy way to explain what's happening here but now over the last three quarters all of the canadian banks are increasing their provision for loan losses. So they put in more this quarter than the previous quarter and more before the quarter before that. And in actual fact, RBC, comparing this quarter to the same quarter a year ago, it's, it's almost a billion dollars difference, right? That, that That's a lot of money for any con, anybody in, in the banking world. So what that means is that we're still... 
going in the direction where the economy is getting softer. It doesn't necessarily mean that the banks have taken these losses yet, but they're preparing for it. And that's what the Bank of Canada is looking at. Remember, they're chatting with the big banks every single day. What are you seeing in this loan market? What are you seeing on, in your investment portfolio for, for this side? What can you guys borrow at? And stuff like that. Uh, but the, all, all five banks, all the five of the big banks in Canada, they are signaling to the Bank of Canada that we're continuing to see our loan portfolios deteriorate. Now, the other thing to think about here is that if you track, for example, these not performing loans to total loans on your book, and you just want to use RBC as an example, I, I tweeted it out. So it's just it's just public data, and I'm not implying it's good or bad or great or anything. But the amount of money they've allocated to that smooth that smoothing account, the um, the non performing loan account, relative to their total loans, because that's what you look at. It's at the lowest number in over 20 years. It's extremely low. And this is without a recession here in Canada. So if you look at the same data for TD, BMO, Scotia, and CRBC, you're all seeing that same space. So what, what we've been suggesting now for a while, and we continue to have this view, if Canada should miraculously return to a normal economic business cycle, right? You mean the laugh track, Rich? You hit the button. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the opportunity is there for all the banks to more than double the amount that they're putting into this bad loan provisioning account. If you want so, to sorry, just to be clear, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, so a low number is a very optimistic view of the world, and a, and a high number in your scenario would be something that would be very conservative, Right. Yeah, so right now the number is showing that the amount that they put aside for bad loans is giving the impression over the history of this data for many one of the big banks you're looking at, um, it's the lowest amount on a relative basis they ever right. put aside. And this is at the exact moment in time we've gone from zero rates to say 5% in Canada. We've yet to hit a recession you know, we get all, you know, globalized risk has been synchronized. Global risk has been synchronized around the world is what we talk about quite a bit. So again, the, the banking sector in Canada, it's going to be awesome if nothing happens, if you get a soft landing and all that stuff. However, if we do trip up somehow, because it could come from somewhere else, uh, that the banks, you will see the banks really ramping up their uh, loan provisioning very aggressively, right? couple uh couple notes on that, Keith. Um, there's some interesting comments um, from Scotiabank in their earnings call. Um, they actually saw their mortgage, I think it was their mortgage balance actually shrunk, uh, outstanding mortgage balance, which is quite unusual, but it actually highlights more so them pulling back on their lending. Um, so for those that aren't deep into, this, into the space, during the pandemic boom, I can tell you from my opinion, anyways, that Scotiabank was probably one of the more aggressive lenders. So especially for investors, like if you were an investor uh, and you're picking up rental properties, a lot of those deals would end up on Scotiabank's desk. They would fund them happily. And uh, really, since obviously the housing market has turned, new CEO, et cetera, Scotiabank has really pulled back on that business. Uh, I also found it quite interesting that, again, keep in mind, a lot of investors will tend to go variable rate mortgages. And if I mentioned to you that a lot of variable 
you know, mortgages are done at Scotia. Scotia also has what they call is like a floating variable. So it's not one of those fixed payment ones where like you, you know, Bank of Canada raises 400 basis points and your payment doesn't change. Scotia, Scotia banks will fluctuate um, every time the Bank of Canada basically raises interest rates. So you'll have an immediate increase in your monthly mortgage payment. Um, there, they noted in their conference call that uh, discretionary spending, such as retail spending, entertainment, et cetera, is down 10% year over year for their variable rate mortgage customers. Um, so it kind of shows you that Canadians, obviously, as payments have been increasing on these mortgage interest costs, uh, are cutting back. And so Scotia is seeing clear evidence of that, um, on their, at least on their variable rate mortgage customers. But that was, that was my point earlier, Steve, which is like, I still, you know, maybe I'm just put, maybe, maybe we disagree. And that's probably a good thing, which is, I think that we have yet to see the real pain come through from interest rates and mortgage rates at whatever, five and six or whatever percent. Because if you look at something I look at a lot is um, debt servicing costs. Um, so household debt service costs. Um, while I look it up quickly, um, which is basically your, your household um, spending um, as a portion of, oh, I'm screwing this up, sorry. It's proportion of disposable income required to meet debt obligations. And um, it, de it depends, there's obviously two parts of it. There's like the total debt servicing cost, and then there's the interest component of that debt servicing cost. And that interest component it, it is just is, is is ripping. And it's already basically at, uh, you know, it's a 10 year high, the total at 14%, whereas other countries like, you know, in, um, in the US, it's, it's much, 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 much lower. It's at basically historical lows. And so I just think if you do get some kind of downturn, or as, as Keith has talked about many times, in, in, in employment or in, you know, I mean, consumer confidence is not doing that well. Um, I just feel like those two things going in opposite directions are going to, are going to really hurt. Um, and then obviously it brings it back to the banks, et cetera, et cetera. But well, you, I, I don't think we can ignore that number. Yeah, but you're exactly. And so you're talking about like lags that everyone's like, oh my God, like inflation's coming back. The bank of Canada needs to keep raising interest rates. Well, like, again, just talking about these lags and how long it takes time to secure sure. through. The Bank of Canada says, again, per their own research, they put this out in their financial stability report like last week, only one third of mortgages, one third of mortgages in Canada have actually seen an increase in their payments compared to February of 2022. So as they started raising rates, which I think was in March of 2022, that was their first yeah. rate hike. Um only one third of mortgages have actually seen an increase. Now, again, so keep in mind, and like of those one third. I bet you there's some people that are just coming off of fixed from 2018. So like they might've come off a three and a half percent rate and they might've been able to lock in at, you know, 4.2, which isn't, isn't like that much damage. Um, and then you've got some of these fixed payment variables, which have only seen maybe marginal increases because of how those programs work. So I think, yes, I would agree with you. I don't think you've seen a lot of this flow through yet on, on higher interest rates. And remember, they only stopped raising rates. What? four or five months ago. Yeah. Use like an eternity. They need to raise rates again, guys. <laughs> Did you see, speaking of which, I, I was kind of curious, Rich, I don't know if you've done much digging into this. I know you're uh, the data guy here, but what, what's your what's your read on this trueflation? It's, I guess it's a free metric that's tracked online. It, it was going around Twitter, basically, because I think, they had U.S. trueflation, 
Um, they had it pinned at, I think, 2.98% year over year. So they're basically having U.S. inflation is now, according to their metrics, sub 3%. And so people were kind of like, hey, like maybe we should take this. Because I think like obviously there's a lot of debate, especially on the Internet around is the government massaging CPI indexes? It hasn't been reporting true inflation for the last decade. Um, and so true inflation, I think at one point hit 12 or 13% year over year. So it was higher than obviously the, the official CPI basket. And now it's showing uh, movement to the downside of, of under 3%. Yeah, I mean, I've looked at this. Um, I'm always really skeptical of people who think they can reinvent the wheel. Um, and um, there have been other ones. I think that there was uh, now the company's escaping me, basically. But they did. They basically re, they 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 basically used the the, ba- the the basket, the CPI basket from 1980s, and they calculated the CPI from Shadow. I think it's Shadow Stats. I think that's it. Shadow Stats CPI, or whatever. I remember now. And they basically used the CPI basket from the 1980s or 1990s, and they calculated um, inflation based on that basket. And they said, see, inflation's much, much higher. It's always been much higher. I mean, I think it's kind of a bit of a red herring because during the – I remember when we first started doing the podcast, we would show, we would talk about the inflation numbers, and people would say, oh, you're crazy. It's way higher than that. And I don't think any of us necessarily disagreed. Um, we, we submitted to them, you know, okay, well, you, you figure it out. But I think it's also the problem with these CPI baskets is number one, the baskets aren't fixed. Number two, there's substitution effects that are very difficult to find. But I think that the more important point really is about direction of travel. I mean, um, and like, so whether or not, are you, is it going up and rising? Is it staying at a, a given level or is it coming down or and going lower? Um, I also think it's really, really tough to, for example, there's about 330 odd million people in the US. There's about 40 million people in Canada. You're like averages by definition destroy information. And what you're trying to do is synthesize an entire economy with trillions of transactions, literally hundreds of millions of people into one monthly data point that is meant to be, you know, the gospel from on high, unimpeachable, perfect data series with nothing wrong with it. I think it's ridiculous expectations. Of course, there's things that are wrong with it. Of course, there are ways to improve it and make it better. I mean, I'm looking at the trueflation now, 3%. I mean, it's not, I guess it's not unreasonable, um, but I think it also, yeah, I think it's, there's all of those different things. Um, I don't know, Keith, if you have a, something to add. Uh, no, you are, you're absolutely right. I mean, so from an investment perspective, it, it's just the direction and the speed that it's moving. That's important. However, for anyone who was supposed to receive an increase in, in pay, that's based on right. the official rate of inflation. Well, you know, there, there's a few grievances going on there. So if you get a, right. a 4% or a 3% pay hike, whatever they paid out recently, and we all know, like nothing has increased 3%. Like you, you would take that in, in a day. Um, yeah, so it, it is one thing. But Rich is right. It, it's incredibly hard to predict. And, you know, just a few decades ago, which you guys don't remember, but, uh, you know, we're basically having zero prints on inflation. Yeah, you know, that's where we are in the early O's, and uh, I used to laugh because all, all of these. I was there for planning, that. <laughs> you were you were there, yeah. All of these financial planning software that people were using, you know, you, you punch in the number, and uh, you know, I used to joke, "Well, put in, put in zero. And they say, "Well, it doesn't work." Put in a negative number because for a while, for a few quarters, we had negative yeah. inflation. 
you know, there we go again, right? With really smart ways of twisting around the definition of something. Uh, but again, like that didn't work either. But inflation, the rate of inflation, it it is coming off a little bit. Now, I know people are pushing me into that camp, you know, oh, it's, 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 yes, prices are still rising, but I just look at it from what will the central bank do to react or to respond to that. So we got the Bank of Canada coming up, the Fed is coming up. I think the Fed is clearly doing another 25 because they, they had the opportunity twice let's get in, in the last well, let's 10 get days. In, let's get into that. Wait, 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 wait. Before, there's just one more thing I need to add. People need to understand that there isn't just one CPI and there isn't just one core. Like there are 12 Federal Reserve branches. Each of them has a slew of PhDs trying to figure out. There's an Atlanta Sticky Fed. There's the Cleveland um, Median Fed. There's the Dallas Federal Reserve CPI. There's, you know, the, in Canada, we have the Bank of Canada's three preferred measures of core, uh, which is a factor model, a, a, you know, a GDP model. And I always forget the other one. I think it's a medium. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of already existing different measures. And I Get what Trueflation is trying to do. I think it's cool. I think it's we want more people analyzing these data, this data, not less. So I would never ever discourage someone to contribute to the knowledge. But this idea that there's just one number and we all bow down to it is is wrong. Sorry. Well, imagine this: like if you're like a you know the inflation rate for a millennial in Toronto versus right you know, the, the boomer in rural Halifax. I mean, it's uh, boomer. Well, that's someone what they, say I boomer. Mean, <laughs> I mean, in Japan, they have just as just as a stupid example. In Japan, they have an urban. They have a they have an inflation rate just for Tokyo, right? Tokyo has thirty million people. There's what 120 odd million people in who living in Japan. Clearly, the inflation plate of someone who lives in Shibuya is going to be different than someone who lives in Osaka or whatever. So, uh, I just there are loads cool. of sorry. That's pretty cool. I feel like they yeah, it is cool. Play, like that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, I just think. I mean, I'm very, very skeptical of policymakers because I think they're politicians and I don't trust politicians. I have a lot less skepticism for a bunch of nerds sitting in a basement down somewhere, you know, in the Dallas Fed doing econometrics. Um, I just trust their, <laughs> their I trust head. them more. Yeah, I just I just don't think that they're motivated to like uh, by power. I think they're motivated by, you know, stats. And I think that those people deserve a little bit more credibility, but maybe I'm naive. So Rich, I think you should write um, a narrative about all this. In your mind, it's nonfiction, but you could sell it as fiction to Hollywood because they could easily come up with some kind of story of like kid economists in their basement trying to do this or that. And then, you know, the bad guys are knocking on the door. Well, I'm just saying we should, we should not conflate, spread. like we should not conflate like Powell and Yellen and literally some guy who you've never heard of, you know, who you know <laughs> maybe just moved out of his mother's basement last weekend, but has a PhD from MIT in econometrics. I mean, those are two wildly different people with wildly different motivations. And so I, and I think sometimes people just because, you know, sometimes you have good data and people miss it and, you know, disabuse that data. Right. So I think that's, as we've seen <laughs> over the last two years, people do all kinds of shit with data. Right. So but let's not anyways, go down that rabbit let's hole. Let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, Keith, you're uh, you're you mentioned about the Fed. So you're you're in the view of the the Fed is going to hike at their next meeting. I'm I am curious your thoughts on that expanding on that. I think there were some Fed minutes that were released. I believe it was yesterday. Um, I think they were. What were they sort of split? It seemed like they were split fifty fifty on on rate hikes moving forward. So I'm kind of curious though. Why don't we dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, so under under basis base of it. As an investor, 
you don't want to be surprised by something in the minutes when they come out. <laughs> because remember, they had the meeting over two days. You know, they quickly write up the minutes for it. And by the way, the minutes for a Fed meeting is not someone in the corner, you know, taking notes what they said. They actually go through it all in the end. Okay, let's change this word to match that word from last week. theater. It's highly yeah, manipulated. It's, it's what they want us to hear, right? Yeah, absolutely. But what I, my point is that they have like the announcement comes out, the statement comes out, and then they have the uh, the, the presser with Q and A, right? So there's three different things going on here. If you have the minutes coming out a month later, and they're giving you information that was not discussed at all or even brought up during the real time release of everything, then that that's concerning. That's when the market blows up and they say, "Whoa." You gave us no idea that was happening. So when the minutes came out yesterday, uh, it was none of that. Everything was was right in line as the way it should be. And there were, there were no real surprises there. And the gist of it is, hey, maybe we should raise rates again next month if inflation is still not where we want it to be. And But if it is coming down where we want it to be, then maybe we won't raise rates. I mean, that that was the gist of it. We can get into another like 30-minute conversation like we did about inflation, which was bit of a snooze there guys but we uh <laughs> <laughs> the call of a spade a spade but that, that was my uh and markets reacted you know the exact same way but I, but the on the whole of it in my view the the data sorry the, the minutes still lean towards hey we we most likely have a rate hike coming again now in a couple of weeks what did you see steve oh i didn't see anything i'm just re- relying on you <laughs> <laughs> very good yeah rich anything from you on the uh the fed minutes we had the american I, I'm nothing on the fed well. minutes for me it was just like what happened in the uk um and the reason i think what's important in the uk is because i think it has there's a bit of an angle and an impact on what we saw last week so in the uk uh core inflation surprised or i'm not sure if it's surprised but it definitely went up after some people were expecting it to sort of continue to roll over like all basically every other country the Europeans are lagging the U.S. cycle, but and the Canadian cycle, but basically your core inflation is sort of peaking almost everywhere. Um, and the U.K. it went up, and it went up because of services, and we've talked about services being sticky and uh, tied to the labor market. And what was interesting is a, 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 a non a non trivial chunk of that was due to interest payments that are sort of feed through into the housing component of inflation. Sorry, Keith, I know this is boring you, but it relates to what we talked about last week. And um, and that's sort of what was happening in the Canadian inflation print. But what I thought was really interesting, again, bring it back to the Fed, was that now there's loads more rate hikes priced in um, in the UK. And now we're talking like another 50, 50, almost 70, depending on your probability distribution, almost 75 basis points more in the UK that are just priced in. And for a country that has a lot of debt, again, at the short-term maturity, it's going to be really interesting whether or not uh, they have sort of the, whether they're going to do it or not. I think that, that's really just another country, another central bank that's sort of in a pickle. It's going to crush those households, man. They better start stroking some checks. <laughs> I'm going to crush them like ants. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, but one thing I love, because over in the UK and as well as Europe last week, uh, there's some really great things happened or they announced Uh-oh. that they might happen. And I feel strongly that if it does happen there, it'll happen here. So that's what they do. They float out trial balloons. Remember the entire West 
it's it's one you may not think it, but they actually get together all the time and they're in Tokyo right now. They what G7. they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, sometimes there's a spat. Sometimes, you know, the leader of Canada might tell the leader of Italy what we think of them sometimes. Um, but the big thing that jumped out to me this week, there, there are three different quotes that came out of the UK and one one out of Europe. So let's, let's do the UK first. Um, and sort of starting at the bottom level and going up higher. So first of all, in Parliament, uh, this this fella, Stephen Flynn, with the Scottish National Party, you know, they're talking, having a big conversation about inflation. And again, this is how most governments think. Basically, the inflation crisis we have right now, his exact words were, this is a cost of greed crisis. So inflation is being caused because Companies, profit seekers are being greedy, and that's why the price of everything is is gone up. Of course, which I would respond to is profit seeking entities by definition that are always greedy. That that's that's what we do, and you're you're able to charge the maximum price possible to maximize your profit. And if you're charging too much, a competitor is going to come in and charge less and take market share away. That that's just the way you know it's economics one hundred and one. Uh, but again, but the whole conversation that was taking place that day in, in parliament or over the uk was that it's the private sector that did this it's not the policy makers that did it and i think you all know how i feel i feel very strongly you know what really caused inflation here we won't go into that here today but the solution to this in the uk is again let's give out money to people who need it because of the price of things are going up and mm-hmm. rich has talked about that a few times over over the podcast, of course. So anyway, so what's happening there is the exact same thing that's happening over here in Canada with that. The next one that came out, which this is the one we really need to listen to. So forget about the inflation story we just did. Forget about the, uh, I figure, forget about the other one. I mean, the, the bank one was somewhat interesting. This is the, the one, whole episode. This is the one to learn. Okay, guys, fast forward to this part of the podcast. Um, so the UK Minister of Finance, this guy Jeremy Hunt, these were his exact words. He said, uh, while instinctively I'm not comfortable about forcing defined contribution pension plans to buy specific assets, I will not rule it out in the future. So what that means is that in the UK, again, like this is not a backbencher, it's not someone in you know the Twitter world suggesting it. This is the guy in charge of all the money in the UK. He is stating that in the future, it's highly it's likely, it's a probability the discussion will take place that they can they will force individual private citizens to direct their savings to buy something that the government wants you to buy, which would be rich uh financial repression yeah there you go government debt looking at government debt or they oh, can disguise it as as infrastructure or something like that but basically they they view and i say they governments view private savings as a big pool of capital that they want to get their hands on that's what they want to do and they're already get their hands on it from a tax perspective once it eventually gets paid out and so forth but right now they're looking at it and say my god we have so much debt here if we could just tap a sliver of that money, then that would make things a lot easier. So everyone, it's it's happening in the UK. 
back in 2012, the IMF wrote a paper about doing a 10% uh, wealth tax on everyone, on, on your assets, not your investment portfolio, on assets. So we have that there. And everything happens in threes, right? No? Yeah. What's the third? Well, I just wanted to let people know that Jeremy Hunt is a conservative party. Uh, just so people don't think it's a left-wing, right-wing thing. It, it, Jeremy Hunt is part of the Conservative Party. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. Uh, the Bank of England, right? The old and, old lady? Is that what they call her? No, no. The old Bailey is, is the law, is the courts of law. The old lady is the court of law? No, the old Bailey. Or am I getting... The old... Anyway, keep going. I screwed that up. <laughs> I'll Google it. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> Look out your window. See what's on the building there. Anyway, guys, the Bank of England... Uh, Again, they indicated, again, this is a quote. Um, so Bailey is the head of the Bank of England, correct? Yes. Andrew okay. Bailey, yeah. Andrew yeah. Bailey, yeah. Yeah, not the old Bailey, just Andrew it Bailey. It is the old the, lady, sorry. The Bank of England is the old lady. And the Steve old is, Bailey is the is the courts of law, sorry. Steve is shaking his head. This is the worst <laughs> episode ever. <laughs> It's getting better. Anyway, uh, the Bank of England, which is equivalent to the Bank of Canada, of course, said um, there's a big question around bank deposits and whether the public can think or believe that their value is protected. So again, here's the leader or the head of the Bank of Canada, like explicitly saying, hey, maybe you might think your bank deposit is, is not safe. So what's the answer? What's the cure for that? Central Bank Digital Currency. Yes, there you go. (laughs) And we talked about that last week, guys. Uh, So again, here's, here's, uh, you know, Britain. They're they're moving towards that same space. And so again, like try to control deposits, government to direct where your money is going to be spent and and so forth. Uh, And then the other interesting thing that came out, uh, Russell Napier, uh, I think we mentioned him before, like a a really sharp guy over in Scotland. He's Canadian, Um, isn't he? I don't know. I think think he's he's pretty Scottish. I think he's pretty pretty good. Uh, But anyway, uh, his latest latest piece, uh, he, he was talking specifically about a speech that Christine Lagarde did uh, a few weeks ago. I think it, I think it was in the U.S. It was in D.C. that she did it. And um, so the whole conversation there, it was, you know, is really going towards central bank digital currencies again. And again, we can't stress how important this is for everyone to understand because it is coming. And that the, the frustration that she was sharing was that. Right now, the only way for, say, the European Central Bank or Bank of Canada to try to get the private sector to spend or to invest is by controlling rates, basically. You know, they make it cheaper, then the private sector will go out and get more capital and allocate it efficiently as as possible, what they want to do. And she was voicing frustration with that because in their mind, it's not going where they thought it should go, right? To see see where it's going. So really, they would prefer a, a setup where, you know, central banks and central bank digital currencies, when they can decide how your capital is allocated. So instead of trying to get capital and then you decide where it's going to go, you're going to go over the central bank digital currency and they say, hey, you know, I, we need X million to do this, you know, whatever Steve is going to build next over in Kitsilano. And they're going to say, well, how many units are you going to put in? You know, they're going to 
decide whether you can make that allocation or not. So here we go. You know, we, we have, and by the way, the last thing with Lagarde, she, she kept using the word, the word Europe. And you might think, well, big deal, right? It's all one big, you know, fantasy land area. But in that world over there, it is not. So you have the Eurozone, which is 20 countries, I believe. And then you have the European Union, which is how many now? 40? No, 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 no. It's not. It's not. It's like 27. 27? Okay. You have to be careful because there's a European community, which includes Norway. And then do you include Switzerland? It's a whole... <laughs> it's a Put whole... them all in together. Yeah. So <laughs> Russell was putting all of it together, basically. But she was specifically just referencing Europe for all of this. And, and that's done with intent as well. So the bottom line is the European project, it's clearly not working. And, and she's trying to get it ready to, you know, hopefully work again. But of course, the biggest country in Europe, what happened with their economy today? What did they announce to everyone? Recession. Rich recession. recession. Yeah. But Germany, down. sorry. Germany is the largest uh, country in the euro area and it's about 25% of GDP, just so people know. Yeah, yeah. That's it, Steve. No, I said unfortunately slipped into recession. Um, but, you know... Yeah, Keith, to your point, Russell Napier, he's been, I don't know, pretty pretty big driver of sort of my larger macro thesis um, for the last couple of years, because I think I listened to a few interviews of him sort of at the onset of the pandemic, and he kind of projected basically where this would go, which was he was kind of a more of a, he was more of a deflationist. And then as, as the pandemic took hold, he turned to an inflationist, uh, so he showed an ability to pivot and uh, basically has been calling for this financial repression, which is basically, it's going to be hard to get inflation back down. And there's simply too much debt in the world um, that this debt cannot be serviced at materially higher interest rates. And so, you know, his argument is essentially that the private sector is going to be mandated to buy government debt in order to essentially suppress um, the, you know, true yield on, on government debt. It's amazing that like nowhere throughout any of these conversations is just perhaps spending less money <laughs> relative to the money that you receive in taxes, e.g. running a budget surplus or even forget forget surplus. I mean, that's just that's a fantasy land. I'm talking about just having a balanced budget for several years. Um, and, I mean, it's just amazing to me that absolutely there was absolutely no appetite for austerity. Um, the, I also think it's sorry to push ahead. back on that, though, right? I mean, I, I sure. guess the other side of the argument is, well, the private sector is too indebted. It is so indebted at this point of this long-term debt super cycle that without any government spending, it's hard to derive any sort of real economic growth. I mean, that's the argument on the other side as well. Um, so we are kind of in this what seems to be like a bit of a doom loop that, almost. Uh, I mean, maybe that's true. For some countries, but the U.S., their household debt to GDP is at a 25-year low. Uh, in the U.K., um, the U U.K. non-financial corporate debt is at a 20-year low relative to GDP. I mean, we know Canada is ridiculous, but there's loads of countries. I mean, Switzerland has no debt. I mean, the Greece is, I mean, for crying out loud, like Spain, which is a country that had huge amounts of debt relative to GDP, was in the hundreds, has totally low lowered it down. I mean, that, I I. I mean, Italy has no household debt to GDP. Household debt to G GDP in Italy is 40%. Just to give you context, in Canada, it's 120%. So I think, it, you know, it's, 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 we got to be careful about just brushing it, taking everything with this one brush, you know, it's, that's, yeah, what, 
but what it is, um, we, we really are, you know, in 0809, we did reach the end of this debt super cycle, basically. And policymakers in, in the West, they allowed it to continue for another 10 plus years with, you know, with, with QE and, and zero negative rates and, and all that stuff. So they didn't change anything. They just put this in place and they hoped that we could grow our way out of the problem. And all that happened was that everyone just, you know, instead of getting your house in order, you're given the opportunity to get your house in order. Um, you know, on an aggregate level, it, it didn't happen. So governments are the ones who really just went crazy and, and they bored, you know, through the roof. And so, you know, you know, we know that, of course, and a lot of the uh big think tanks around the world, they are well aware of that as, as well. And that's why we're hearing these conversations about, yeah, let's take, uh, you know, 10% of everyone's wealth, charge it as a tax. Let's go after people's pension funds and, and things like that. Let's have a one world order, you know, let's eat bugs. And we, <laughs> you know, we, we laugh at that and make fun of it. However, but in some ways, there's actually some truth and realism attached to it because they understand and appreciate that, hey, th this current system is, is not going to last. Now, what I don't agree with is that they think they can create something better to sort of, you know, keep it going the way they want to. And I use the word they a lot to this, this episode, by the way. However, again, I love to listen to what policymakers and decision makers are saying. And you don't have to agree or disagree with them. You just have to understand what they're telling you. And and again, like th it, this is loud and clear, everyone. We're going down a road where the governments have way too much debt. They cannot solve it. It doesn't matter. Well, they what don't want to. There's no political will to solve it, is what you mean. Yeah, I don't think they can, though. Like even with the Americans, you know, with, with this, you know, this debt ceiling, you know, conversation that that's taken place to put it loosely they, they, they can't be fixed right there's just too much debt there so how do you get rid of debt you know you you write it off and i keep saying there's, there's the opportunity is there someone is going to, to do it someone's going to say hey i'm not going down this other road you simply do a, a debt for equity swap within your country and whoever does it first whoever has the the courage to do it uh, it might seem scary at first and you might screw it up, right? Because, you know, that, that's what happens sometimes. But that is the road to go down, not this other road where you're just trying to make everything equal and uh, aggregate everyone's money into this into this central bank digital currency. There is a way out of this. Ottawa, hey, I, I know you're listening. They're coming for the boomer's house. Come to three of us. And we'll, we'll How about deregulation as a starting point and lowering taxes but anyway, in order to spur growth? But Keith, I have a, I have a more serious question because I know they're never going to lower taxes. Um, do you make a distinction between developed markets and emerging markets? Because, if you know, a lot of this talk about really high debts to GDP from a government standpoint, from non-financial corporate standpoint, household, all that is very much a developed market issue. And what do I mean by developed markets? Japan, France, Switzerland, Belgium, Italy, UK, whatever. But if you look at the emerging market world, none of these, and 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 yes, their economies might be small, but they have incredible population centers, right? If you look at debt to GDP ratios for India, it's 170. If you look at Russia, it's 110. 
you know, you might joke about that economy, but it's an important economy to consider. Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, 80% that's a GDP. Mexico is 82. I mean, so, and that's total that's a GDP. That includes public and private. Right. Just to get just to contextualize this, Canada has 300 percent. That's a GDP. Right. So, you know, you've got all of the, the youth, the growth and, you know, the potential really for to push the, the world forward is in this space that has very little debt to GDP. And so do, do you make a distinction personally when you're thinking about this as far as debt to jubil- debt jubilees and the word they, et cetera, et cetera? Or do do they not matter? It doesn't matter. And, and the reason I say that. In a normal business cycle, yeah, it's important. So when it's risk on, money will flow out to those markets. And let's just say there's not a lot of regulation in some of these places. You go over there and you can make a lot of money and do a lot of good things that area. And then but once things roll over, you know, your money comes back, you know, to to the West. Because we're we are at the end of this long, you know, mega rate debt cycle. The, the moment the next crisis begins, and it's going to happen again, guys. I mean, that's just, it's just the world we're in. Money comes flooding. It just gushes out of those markets. So it doesn't matter about the, you know, the demographics there, the lack of debt, the, the, uh, the pace of GDP and economic growth, everything. But when money, when you control capital that's liquid, the moment you get a whiff that you're going to lose half your money, you move it. Like you get the hell out. But that's out. what I'm saying. No, but that's what I'm saying. That the where you lose your money, where you're going to lose half your money is in the developed markets. That those the I'm saying it, won't the capital flow from the developed markets in fear of the haircut into a market that 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 won't happen. No, because money will flow into U.S. dollars because those emerging okay. market or developing countries they they remember they're part of the global system. Yeah, and that wheel okay. is greased with USD. So the right. moment all the capital is flowing into U.S. dollars, which is you know treasuries, that's what you're looking at. Yeah, uh, the banking system doesn't work anymore. Like everything just gets greased okay. up. If, if anyone is familiar with letters of credit, you know, to spend some time to understand what they are, and then you'll say, okay, now I get it. Now I understand that. Okay. Did you want to get into the debt ceiling? We only got a couple more minutes left. Into the what? The debt, the debt ceiling. ceiling. Fiasco. ceiling. Well, Keith, because the only reason uh, why I bring that up is you had a pretty good call two weeks ago now, and it's, you know, is basically bond market volatility. Yields have spiked. Uh, obviously, I get, I'm getting messages every day from people sending me charts of the Canada five-year bond yield and mortgage rates are going back up. Inflation's sticky. Everybody's freaking out. Um, this is the end of the world. So I'm kind of curious where you're at with, with, with that. Um, you know that sort of discussion. Yeah, because- so we 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 still have that position on. Uh, after we close it, I'll, I'll share with everyone on the podcast that we're, we're now done. Mind you, don't use that as a timing entry or exit <laughs> point because we do this once a week, and uh, you could be missing it. Uh, but with the whole debt ceiling, you know, it's my understanding now. Um, Tuesday will be a vote in the House, and whether they'll accept what's potentially going to be agreed to over this weekend. Uh, so t- again, I don't mean a joke by saying that, but today is Thursday. Friday is the last trading day before the House vote because Monday is Memorial Day in the U.S. So exchange markets are closed in the U.S. Futures markets are wide open, by the way. But um, you, know, you have that taking place. So I, I, I suspect if, if 
if it is passed on Tuesday and like Sunday, late Sunday night, they come to the agreement and everything, we, we will get a, a near-term euphoria kind of rally in, in some sense. So whether that's in like risk on in FX markets and, and equities and credit and stuff like that. And if, if that's the case, it, it could be a bit of a short-lived rally because then we got the Fed coming up right after, of course. See how the timing all works out? We got the Fed coming out and then just say the Fed, they hike again and they're still going to say, they're not going to say we're done. They're going to say, hey, we're still cautious, but we're looking at stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, we, we get the the. the fear or the risk of you know recession coming along again but the debt ceiling talks some people say uh, it, you know what it, it's it's political theater and it really is like it over this weekend some old guy in washington is going to come out he need he looks like shit because he's been up for five hours working and he's going to say we worked hard all night and we we fixed it. Yeah, that's Where what he looks like, like after he gets from gets up from his nap. What do you? <laughs> yeah, I look like that a lot as as well. But uh, you know that's that's the way they have to do it because both sides. And what I mean by that, both like the left and the right, they they need to win political points with this, and they're not going to get political points from the majority of the population because people don't care about it. They can see straight through it, but we have to go through this exercise. I think Rich, you mentioned before as well, like longer term, it, it doesn't matter. Like, are they going to extend the debt ceiling? Of course they are. You know, you know, that's going to happen. Will the, will the Americans default on their debt? No, of course not. Maybe something might happen technically that might look bad, but if, if you hold a 30 day T bill or a three month, a one year T bill, you're getting your money back, right? You're, you're going to get paid. So um, it's great fun. And, you know, Steve is up all night following this because he's really. <laughs> no, he's dude, really I sent you uh, I sent you a chart there on the, uh, on the T bill stuff. But uh, so there was a T bill that comes due up on June 6th. Uh, it was, it was yielding more than 7%. Uh, at the start of the month, the yield was about 4.62. So it went from four, six to about seven on uh, on T-bill maturing on June 6th. Um, so clearly investors are, I, I may probably overreacting, but uh, there's definitely, you know, it's creating a lot of volatility in the bond market. And I think that's, you know, full So circle. by the way, everyone, so for that June 6th T-bill that that's being priced, I, I could find, I'll find it. I bet it's not available to trade. Right? Well, that's what I was going to say, liquidity. It's just the, the and really it's a, uh, at this point in time, it, it's a 12-day, you know, money market instrument. That's what it is. So everyone, don't go running out trying to find this <laughs> magical June 6 T-bill, you know, that that uh, was, you know, mentioned on Twitter. Everyone's logging another Quest Trade account. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they get charged 3% to buy it because it's an off-the-run issuance and no one can find it and yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, well, I think that's a, so we'll, uh, we'll watch for the, uh, the old guys coming out of their naps here on the weekend, uh, to resolve this debt ceiling. And, uh, it's a good place to leave it for this week. So as always, we appreciate the support. Uh, all we ask that you share this episode with at least one friend or family member, leave us a five-star review, Spotify, Apple podcasts, et cetera, help us to continue to grow the, uh, the loony hour here. So appreciate your support and we'll see you next week.